Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, President of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We want to thank you for listening to this chapel message. Our mission at Southeastern is to seek to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ by equipping students to serve the church and fulfill the Great Commission. We hope that you enjoy this chapel message and that you will visit our website. It's www.sebts.edu. There you can learn more about our school and what the Lord is doing here. We hope you enjoy the message. Thank you for being a part of what we're doing here. Thank you, Bruce. I need to begin with a confession. This is not the most important sermon you're ever going to hear. That may have happened last year when David Platt came and spoke about our need to reach the world for Christ. Nothing is more urgent and important than that. This message just hopes to add some depth and breadth to that mission. It's most important that sinners turn from their sin and put their faith in Christ. But then what? How do ordinary Christians integrate their faith into their normal everyday lives? And how do we as pastors and Christian leaders inspire them to do so? We're going to need a robust theology of creation. And to do that, we're going to have to honestly confront the tension of life. Have you noticed that the Bible, like any other book, has a plot? It begins with creation, then there's a fall, and then there's redemption. Creation tells us everything God made is good. The fall, everything's been broken by our sin. And redemption, God wants it all back. So this unified story of the Bible tells us everything counts. So when we're pastors, we want people to come to Christ. We also hold parenting seminars and marriage retreats and financial peace seminars because everything counts. But there's two, here comes the tension now, there's two distinctions in this unified story which tells us that some things matter more. In Psalm 73, 25, David prayed, Whom have I in heaven but you, O Lord? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. So God, the creator, matters more than all of his creation. Second tension, redemption matters more than creation. In Matthew 16, 24, Jesus said, What's it profit a person if he gains the whole world yet loses his soul? Feel that tension? Everything counts, but some things count more. God matters more than the world. Redemption matters more than creation. So when we do missions, we want to bring clean water to villages and other continents. We want to dig wells, and that's good and necessary, but we're Christians. We won't be content until they drink from the living water. We travel around the world teaching conversational English, and that's important, but we're Christians. We're not content until the people we reach know Jesus. I have a daughter. She's in eighth grade and she's in gymnastics, and I like that. It's part of creation, part of being a good human, well-rounded, but these meets fall on the weekends, and we just said right off the bat, honey, you will never skip church for gymnastics because I, I like that you're doing sports, but I need you to love Jesus, and I need you to love the church. Feel that tension? Everything counts but some things count more. They just do. Now to add one more twist in the tension. Everything counts, but some things count more. Some things count more, but everything still counts. So we can, of course, God matters more than the world. Of course he does. But we can, 
I guess overplay that tension, that we act as if the world doesn't matter at all. In fact, you read some authors and you get the sense that you can never even enjoy a sandwich as a sandwich. You can only enjoy God through the sandwich. No, of course, you do enjoy God through the sandwich, but the sandwich is more than just a window onto God. It's also a sandwich, and God wants you to enjoy it. So I was reading this author, a very conservative author in a very conservative seminary, a very conservative publisher, and he's talking about this, how God is the only thing that matters, and I thought, wow, this feels strange, almost like we're in seminary here, like I can say the word, panentheism, that the world is just a part of God, and when he, he said in the end note, if you think this sounds like panentheism, I think that's what the Bible teaches. What? That's almost Buddhist. That the world is just a part of God. But he's so afraid of giving any attention to creation because it might detract from the glory of God that creation doesn't matter at all. And I think this comes through the influence of America's greatest theologian, Jonathan Edwards, who had some statements which sound panentheistic. He talks about, in the end, we'll delight in our annihilation so that God will be all in all. Um, I talked to this, he's a friend of mine now, and I asked him about, are you sure you're a panentheist? How can you be that? And he said, yes, I think we are just an idea in the mind of God. And I said, but if we're just ideas in the mind of God, then we're not separate from God. We're just a part of him. And if we're just a part of God, we can't even properly love him. Because to love someone, you have to have a relationship, Right? And to have a relationship, you have to have distance, right? When you're in love with someone, you say things like, I will climb any mountain. I will cross any ocean to get to where you are. Whatever the distance, I will overcome it. Doesn't that imply there's, there's got to be distance that's overcome? Like that country western song says, how can I miss you if you never go away? <laughs> we need... Here's the thing, if we're not a separate and good creation, separate from God, there's no place from which we can stand and turn and love God from. If you're just a part of God, if you're just God's idea, you can't even love him. So the giver matters more than the gifts, absolutely. But every giver wants the recipient to enjoy the gift. Right? Imagine if you had this insufferably pious child when every Christmas, every birthday, you gave them the present, and they would quickly open the present, look at it, and toss it aside and say, but all I really want is you, Mommy. All I really want is you, Daddy. Wouldn't you say, great? <laughs> but you know what? You're impossible to shop for. <laughs> I want you to love me most, but I also want you to enjoy the Rubik's Cube. Knock yourself out. Enjoy it. You feel the tension? The giver matters more than all of his gifts, but the giver of all good gifts wants us to enjoy the gifts. So in 1 Timothy 6.17, right in the middle where Paul is encouraging generosity and sacrificial sharing, he says God has given us every good gift for our enjoyment. Feel that tension again? It's a tension I think we have to be, to be honest about. So God matters more than the world, but the world still matters, or you can't even have a relationship with God. Same thing with redemption and creation. Redemption, not going to hell, matters way more than creation. But redemption is actually aimed at creation. Redemption means to restore something. What is it restoring? The world that God made. God made the world good, our sin broke this world, and God wants it all back. 
the empire will strike back, this time the good one. So in Acts 3.21, we read that Peter says, Jesus has gone to heaven until the time comes for God to restore all things. Colossians 1.20, to the cross, God is reconciling to, reconciling to himself all things. I think this is one of the Christian distinctives, right? What makes a Christian faith unique? We have a trinity. We alone have salvation only of grace. I think we're also the only religion in which the good stuff comes here. How did our Lord teach us to pray? Our Father in heaven, thy kingdom come. The kingdom comes. Every other religion, the good stuff happens someplace else, high up and far away. So if you're a Buddhist, you want to go to Nirvana, some other place, a Native American, to the happy hunting ground in the sky. Only the Christian faith says, no, the good stuff comes here. How does the Bible end? Almost the last prayer of the Bible is, come, come, Lord Jesus. So redemption is aimed at creation. Redemption also requires a good creation. In John 1.14, John said the word, the Son of God became flesh, became physical. Without a good creation, you can't have an incarnation. Without a good creation, you can't have what we sang this morning. We believe in the resurrection. What's the most spiritually minded church, the most heavily minded church in the whole Bible? Wouldn't it be the church in Corinth? They said, we speak with the tongues of angels. And we're so spiritual, we don't believe in sex. If you're single, don't get married. If you're married, don't get a divorce. If you can't get divorced, at least don't sleep with your spouse. And so Paul writes this awkward chapter, 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, I agree with you, singleness, there's benefits, but not for the reasons you give. And then in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Corinthians, they're so spiritual, they said, we can't believe in a resurrection because that's physical and earthy, it's beneath God. And Paul, in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 through 17, you can read it later, he's angry because he repeats himself twice. He's frustrated. He says, congratulations, Corinthians. If there is no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, you're still in your sins. You are now so spiritual, you're no longer even Christian. You can be more spiritual than God. Spiritualism can just be another form of paganism. So just as God matters more than the world, but you need a good world from which you can stand and turn and love God from, redemption matters more than creation, of course. But without a good creation, you can't even have redemption. In fact, if you think about the story of the Bible, the whole story, it's physical. It's more than physical, but it's not less than. It starts in this Garden of Eden, this Garden of Delight, the big redemptive event of the Old Testament is a bunch of physical Jews being delivered from physical bondage across a physical border into a land with physical milk and honey and delights. Our faith hinges on the embodiment of the Son of God. He took on a full human nature, which includes a body. He physically died and physically rose again. He physically went to heaven, and we await his physical return and our physical resurrection and the physical restoration of all things. The whole story is physical. Without a good physical world, the Bible's story just falls. It makes no sense. In fact, there's a story in the Bible which I think illustrates this tension, that everything matters, but some things matter more. Some things matter more, but everything still counts. 
It's in John 21. After the resurrection, Jesus has appeared twice to the disciples. And they're hiding out of fear from the Jews. And, and Peter says, I'm going fishing. Now, you may have heard sermons that said this was Peter backsliding. Not because he was a Baptist, but that's... Um, he used to fish for fish, and then Jesus came, and now he's fishing for men, and now he's gone back to just catching fish again. Well, Peter wasn't perfect, but give the guy a break. What do you want from him? He's hiding, waiting for Jesus to appear and give him his marching orders. And so Peter says, I can wait in this windowless room out of fear for the Jews, or I can wait out there in the dark on the Sea of Galilee. No one will catch me there. I think I'll go fishing. And six of his friends say, we'll go with you. So they go out on the Sea of Galilee, they fish all night, and they get skunked. In the Bible, every time someone fishes all night, they always get skunked. So don't bother. So they're, now that would have bothered Peter a while ago, right? But not this time, because Jesus is alive. My life is forever changed, and just last week, it's okay if I don't catch anything, big deal. But then in the morning, there's this shadowy figure on the shore who says, hey, try the other side. And they throw their nets over, and now their nets are breaking with so much fish. And they figure out quickly, hey, that's Jesus. So the text says Peter threw his clothes on and jumped in. The, so apparently he fished in the nude and put his clothes on to jump in, the, like opposite of us. We take clothes off to get in the, the water. But he's putting clothes on, jumping in the water, and splashing towards Jesus. Why? Because it's Jesus. Jesus matters more than all of this fish. But what does Jesus say? Peter, go back and help your friends. Jesus matters more. He's God. He's the Redeemer. But Jesus sends us back into creation. And Peter goes and helps his friends bring in the fish. And how many fish did they catch? The text actually tells us. 153. You know what that means. In the presence of the resurrected Christ, somebody's counting fish. Who does that? <laughs> Probably Thomas. 14, I can't believe it. 16. No, fishermen do that, right? Jesus matters more than the fish, but the fish still count, and doggone it, we will count them. Feel that tension? And I love this part. Jesus said, give me some of those fish. And the, the text says he made breakfast on the beach. I mean, think of it. The scarred hands of the resurrected Christ made this roaring fire, let the coal settle, and bake bread and fish over it to prepare Peter for that really hard conversation. Peter, do you love me more than all these? Feel the tension again? Jesus matters more than anything else, of course. So we turn our eyes upon Jesus and the things of earth do and they must grow strangely dim. But it's not a zero-sum game. Jesus matters more, but he's the creator of all things. He's a redeemer of all things. Therefore, all things count. So turn your eyes upon Jesus and also the things of earth will grow strangely significant because you realize we can enjoy this world, 
and we can cultivate it for our Lord and Savior. So that's a tension I think we have to be honest about in our ministries, in our lives. And if you ever stop feeling the tension, you've probably fallen off one side or the other. There is this tension. We have so much time, and, and in a fallen world, how do you manage your resources? We're human, part of creation, and we're Christian, we're part of redemption. But redemption restores creation. So the whole point of being a Christian is to flourish in your human life. And so we've got to find a way to bring these two worlds together. It's the same life. And so here's, as we prepare for ministry, four things I think we need to do to prepare our people, to lead our people, how to thrive in their life. First, we must give priority to the gospel. Again, please hear this. Nothing matters more for your life, for my life, for anyone's life than what Jesus has done. Jesus came and died and rose again. That's the gospel. The gospel is nothing that we achieve. It's something we receive. And we must never lose the emphasis on Jesus and his death and resurrection on our behalf. So just about a month ago, a pastor friend of mine called me on a Monday afternoon and said, I, I just got to talk to somebody. I just came from a funeral where the message was all about this person is made in God's image and we're all made in God's image and so life counts. And I, I agreed with him. I mean, this is a church funeral. We got to give the gospel. It, 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 the gospel is not just... You, you have value because you're made in God's image. The gospel is Jesus died for this person and he rose again and we're all going to hell unless we put our faith in Christ. So an hour or two later, I went to class and the topic that night was image of God. And I said, I just, this is a strange way to start the class, but we're going to spend three hours talking about what it means being made in God's image. And you just have to know, this is not the most important thing. And if you're ever preaching a funeral, you better do a lot more than that. And if you, if you cannot do more than that, get out of the ministry. If you can't preach a funeral, you just can't preach. It's got to be about the gospel in Jesus. So emphasize the gospel. Secondly, without minimizing that, we have to give our people permission to enjoy creation, to enjoy their lives. A lot of pastors miss this, I think. They read verses like 1 John 2.15, do not love the world. And they all but say the world is nothing but an idol trap. Now, idolatry is sin. We must hate idolatry. But if you're always concerned about the idol trap, you can never enjoy creation as it's meant to be enjoyed. In fact, here's um, the proper way to read verses like 1 John 2.15. Let me explain it this way by um, explaining to you that the same words can be used as nouns or as verbs, as things or as actions. Like take the word rock. Rock can be a thing or rock can be an action. We will, we will rock you. Or a hammer can be a noun. You hit a nail with a hammer. Or a hammer can be a verb. Do not tweet when you're hammered. It will not sound so impressive when you sober up. Right? Understand the idea? The same word can be a noun or a verb, a thing or an action. Isn't that what's going on in John? In John 3.16, God so loves the world. In 1 John 2.15, don't you love the world? Is that a contradiction? Is that unfair? God loves the world and tells me not to? Or is God in John using the word world there in two different ways? 
In John 3, 16, it's, it's the noun, it's things. God loves you and you and you. Put your name in the blank. Everything that God made, God loves. But in 1 John 2, keep reading in verse 16 and 17, the world is lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. What is lust, lust, and pride? They're not things, are they? They're sins. So God is not telling us in 1 John 2, don't love things. Again, we can make an idol out of them and that's sin again. But he's saying, don't love sin. So I heard a pastor once pray, Lord, protect us from the things of this world. And I, I grew up in this world. I knew what he meant by that. But if you think about it, that's kind of an odd prayer. Protect us from the things of this world. Now, every good thing can be abused. But we fight the abuse, not the thing itself. Right, imagine a Thanksgiving prayer that goes something like this. Our Father, guard our hearts today from the sin of gluttony. Temptation lies on every side. There's turkey and there's ham. There's potatoes, both mashed and sweet. There's salads, both tossed and cranberry. Lord, guard our hearts from sin, and please forgive the hands that prepared our temptation. <laughs> Wouldn't that prayer end with a guy wearing the mashed potatoes? Like, how dare you? Right? We, we make this distinction all the time. Right? Martin Luther said, yes, there are people who worship the sun and the stars, but we don't drag them out of the sky. Yes, there are people who visit prostitutes, but we don't kill all of our women. Yes, there are people who get drunk, but we don't pour out all of our wine. All right, I'm Baptist. I do that one. But, but still, <laughs> we, you get the distinction, right? In fact, think of me. Every sin is, every great sin, every heinous sin is great to the extent it's a corruption of a prior high good of creation. How do you get the devil? Only if you start with Lucifer. If Lucifer was a short, dumpy, bald guy, he'd be like George Costanza. He couldn't become the devil. If you start with Lucifer, you get Satan. What, what are some unthinkable sins, like, like incest? Why is that so unbelievably bad? Because what's pure than a love between a father and a daughter? And when that gets perverted, you don't even want to imagine it. This helps us with sin, I think. We have a huge pornography problem in large part thanks to the internet. And the way to fight pornography is not stop looking at porn, stop looking at porn, because you remind yourself then to look at porn. Say, pornography, that's the corruption of what prior good? God's wonderful gift of sex. How can I, in my present condition, celebrate, honor that? Focus on the good that this is perverting, and you realize the perversion is as sick and ugly as it truly is. So we have to give our people permission to enjoy God's world and tell them, we're Christians, we fight sin, we fight idolatry. We don't fight God's good gifts. Another place where this distinction helps us is in 1 Peter 2.11. Peter says, dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in this world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Now, many Christians, many pastors read that and say, aha, we are aliens and strangers. We do not belong in this world. Um, one of them even wrote a best-selling book and said, the reason we experience difficulty, sorrow, and rejection 
is because we're not yet in our true home. I thought, well, realtors talk about location, location, location. That's not our problem. We're in the right location. God put us here. And you're not committing treason just for saying, this is where I'm supposed to live. Um, Genesis 2-7 says, Adam came from the Adamah. The name for man means red dirt. So when you have a child, the most biblically accurate, theologically correct name you could ever give your child is clay. (laughs) Or dusty. If you have a girl, sandy. (laughs) Maybe terra, like terra firma, that that would work. But that's, we are... We are earthlings, for heaven's sake. Right? When I was a kid in Sunday school, we used to sing 10 and 9, 8 and 7, 6 and 5 and 4. The countdown's getting lower every day. Blast off! Somewhere in outer space, God has prepared a place for those who... Anyone ever sing that? It's an Ohio thing, I guess. All right. Um, it's a fun song, but it's kind of bizarre. Like somewhere in outer space, I come from outer space, I'm here for a while, and thank God I get to go back to my true home. Most Christians think that's what the Bible teaches. That's, I call it Martian theology. We are not Martians. We belong on earth. Now, it is true, what a great comfort. When we die, our souls go to heaven. We never want to ever minimize that comfort. But going to heaven is not the goal. It's not the end of the story. Read the last couple chapters of the Bible, the story ends with Jesus returning to this earth, bringing the souls of our loved ones with him, resurrecting their bodies and putting them back together. That's the end. We're Christians. We believe in the return of Christ. We believe in the resurrection of our bodies. And we believe in the restoration of all things. That's the biblical hope. Now it is true, when someone dies, Because they're going home to be with Jesus, we can't say they're going home. There is a real sense in which that's true. But it's also a bit complicated. Like, let's say during this semester, if your parents have moved, and it's time to go home now for Thanksgiving or Christmas, and your friends say, are you going home? You say, kind of, yes. I'm I'm going home because I'm going to my parents' house, but not exactly because I've never lived there. It's a whole different town. I don't know anyone there except my parents. So it's complicated. So Jesus is our spiritual home. Jesus is who we are to live with forever. But the earth is our ontological home. It's where we are supposed to live forever. So the tension, again, there's there's so many tensions we have to be honest about. Praise God. What a great comfort that when we die in Christ, our souls go to be with Jesus in heaven. But the salvation gospel, the offer of the gospel is not heaven or hell. It's actually hell or here. Would you like to live here forever without the handicap, the obstacle of sin? And if you say, I don't, I have, I've had such a hard life. I don't want to live. I want to just go away. Well, when Christ comes back, the curse is reversed, right? Sin is no more. Everything you don't like about your life, I guarantee you, is directly traceable to the fall. When the fall is gone, you will flat out love it here. There's nothing not to like here. And going to heaven, even with my children, we didn't say, say this prayer 
so you can go to heaven when you die, but turn from your sin, put your faith in Christ so you can live here forever with your mother and father and all of your loved ones who put their faith in Christ. A kid can resonate with that. That's attractive to them. It also actually happens to be true. It's what the Bible teaches. So we must encourage our people to enjoy God's world. When we do this, we avoid legalism. So I have a friend who's an artist, and she's really good at it. And she's told me recently that for the longest time, she couldn't put together her following Jesus and her love for her art because she said, following Christ, I must take up my cross and suffer, but I enjoy art. So the best she could figure was she had to follow Jesus some other place, not in her studio. And she picked this up from church. Another best-selling author says uh, approvingly that his mother decided she would never go to movies again. Now, there's good reasons not to go to movies, most of them. But she wouldn't go to movies because she did not want to be caught having fun when Jesus returned. That's not a good reason not to watch movies. We have this a new kind of legalism. The old one was having beer in the fridge. Now it's having a, a BMW in your driveway, right? Christians wonder, how nice of a house can I have? How new model of a car can I drive? When I go on vacation, am I allowed to go to the beach or do I have to go to Branson? <laughs> how much am I really allowed to enjoy this life that God has given me? I think a lot of Christians have this low-grade residual guilt. They, they're so afraid of... Again, we, we, must not, we must not put our hopes and dreams in creation or any pleasure here. We must not make an idol out of anything. But God, the giver of all good gifts, wants us to enjoy his gifts. In fact, if you think about it, every, and key word here is wholesome, not sinful, but every wholesome pleasure you enjoy, it was God's idea first. God came up with flavors and colors and strawberries and chocolate and strawberries dipped in chocolate. That was all him. Why would we think somehow God's against pleasure? So we have to fight this new kind of legalism. Also, when we do this thinking that I'm not allowed to enjoy the world, it also strangely goes the other way and gives many Christians a license to sin. Because they figure if God only cares about the spiritual part of me, then the rest of me doesn't really matter. And so they say, God is number one. But if God is only number one, you can check him off. So you wake up in the morning, God, you're number one. Read my Bible, pray, check. The rest of the day is for me. I come to church on Sunday, first day of the week, check. The rest of the week is for me. I give God a tithe right off the top, check. The rest of the money is for me. Again, God is number one. He is the priority, but he's also the hub of the wheel. And every aspect of our lives must be permeated with commitment to Christ as Lord. There are no timeouts in the Christian life. Time out, God. This is just my time now. Time out, God. This is just my money now. It all belongs to God. Every square inch of it. If just the Christians who work in the banking industry knew this, I think we could have avoided the economic meltdown of 2008. What if just the Christians who worked in finance said, you know what, I know Jesus cares about my spiritual life, my church life, but he also cares about how I do my job. It all belongs to him. 
So I will not give you a mortgage I know you cannot afford. I will not take this mortgage, combined with other toxic securities, and sell to other unsuspecting suckers, because that wouldn't be loving either. What if just the Christians in this country, working in banking and finance, acted as if even their banking life mattered to God? I think we could have avoided this huge meltdown we're still trying to dig out of. So we must teach our people the gospel matters most. We must also give them permission to enjoy creation. By the way, just an aside with creation again, your body matters to God. The resurrection is targeted for your body. Your body is not just the temporary residence for your soul. Your body is not just the shell for the real you. And if you believe that, you have little to say to the transgender people who say, my body might be male, but my spirit is really female. I must change my body to match my soul. So a healthy view of creation is needed today even to do important theological work. No, you are not just a soul in a body. You are a whole person, body and soul. And all of you will live forever with Christ when he comes again. So we teach people to emphasize the gospel, to enjoy creation, and then we command them to do their callings for the Lord Jesus. This is a Protestant principle. If you're part of the Reformation, you've got to believe this. Martin Luther said, before he became Martin Luther and the head of the Reformation, he was a monk. And he said, heaven matters more than earth, my soul matters more than God, so I'm going to give up marriage and money, and I will take the vow of celibacy and poverty, and I'll become a monk. I will try to get higher and climb up to satisfy God. And he had many emotional breakdowns, because he said, how can you get to God? You can't go high enough. You can't give up enough to satisfy him. And then through reading scripture, he realized, that's kind of the point. I can't get to God. God has come to me. And he ignited then this Reformation, where the Reformation is really the recovery of the natural world. Ordinary life matters now. We have to stop saying that only pastors and missionaries are, quote, full-time Christians. What's everyone else, part-time? Aren't we all full-time Christians? I've got three brothers that are all in different kinds of business. And a friend trying to encourage my father once said, you must be so grateful to God that one of your sons is doing something of eternal significance. That's me. <laughs> now that's terrible, right? Have we learned nothing? If you don't have entrepreneurs, if you don't have business people, you don't have jobs. You don't have jobs, you don't got a town. You don't have a town, you don't have a church. You want to have a church, you better have jobs. So we need to encourage people. God has no second-class Christians. I was giving this talk once, and a truck driver came up and said, thank you, I now realize why driving a truck matters. It's not just a way to earn money, but I'm actually serving people and obeying the first command God ever gave me to develop culture and serve my neighbor. Later, a, a pilot said, thank you for telling me this. I, I, I'm, what's a pilot but just a truck driver in the sky? So, I don't know what is a truck driver, but even if someone's a truck driver, right, it matters. Colossians 3, 23 and 24, Paul says to slaves, do your job with all your might as the, serving the Lord Jesus Christ. You are literally serving Jesus as you do your 
low on the totem pole job, slavery. Why? Why can Paul say that in Colossians chapter 3? Well, because in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 through 17, he says Jesus Christ is the creator of all things. That means it's Jesus who back in Genesis 1, 28 and 2, 15, it's Jesus who says develop culture, rule over creation. So Paul can say in Colossians chapter 3, even if you're a slave, it counts. In fact, more than ever, I think we need Ordinary Christians doing ordinary jobs for the glory of God. You've noticed, right, the culture last couple of years has turned against Christians. They used to like our values, just not our beliefs. Now they really hate our values. They think we're bigots. So wouldn't it say something to the culture? Wouldn't it be the best advertisement for the gospel to the culture if every time they turned around, the best anything was a Christian? The best lawyer, the best surgeon, the best teacher, the best carpenters. They would say, we don't like these Christians, what they stand for. But I got to say, you want a job done well? You want it done right? Find a Christian. They do good work. In Titus chapter 2 and verse 10, Paul says, again, to slaves, submit to your masters. Do your best to please them. And so make the gospel attractive. A friend of mine said he was in church one day morning and the preacher did a great sermon on Dorcas who um, when he she died everyone came to visit her and they lamented her death because she had done all this quilting and crocheting and made stuff for them and afterwards there was a fellow who came up and said that was a great sermon and I, I just I realized I'm a failure because I don't I don't do that I can't quilt I can't knit but also I, I don't have time I'm so busy at my work and I work 50 hours a week I, how can I do these things for Jesus and my friend encouraged him, wait a minute, just because you get paid to do that does not mean it doesn't count for Jesus. If that was true, if getting paid to do something means it didn't count, then pastors and missionaries could do nothing that counts for Jesus. Right? You serve Jesus at your job, in your calling. We also need to tell people if they ever get unemployed or retire that you still have a calling from God. In fact, your most important callings are the ones that you don't get paid to do. That's why they're most important. Um, if coming back from a beautiful vacation, if my wife said, honey, I just feel your love, and I feel like it's worth $30. Do you have change for a 50? Like, no, I feel dirty now. You don't pay me to be your husband. I do that for free, and I'm insulted that you would even think that. Or what's well, even a higher calling, a church member, right? You are called to be part of the body of Christ. I know church membership is frowned on. Words of the Bible talk about church membership. Well, 1 Corinthians 5, 13. Paul says, expel that man. Expel that immoral man from among your number. That means you had a concept of church membership. We must encourage our people to join the body of Christ. To join. Why wouldn't you want to join the bride of Christ? As that great theologian Beyonce once said, if you like it, put a ring on it, right? Marry Jesus, marry the church. These are your most important callings. It counts. So we must encourage people to preach the gospel, to enjoy creation, to do whatever God has called them to do. Every wholesome calling. Paul says even a slave can do that for Jesus and make the gospel attractive. And then I think we also need to encourage people, fourthly, to 
rest. Take a Sabbath rest. Now, this is even more controversial. Um, we can't make a law about this because Jesus has come. Hebrews 4 says Jesus fills up the Sabbath. But I also think if the Sabbath does point to Jesus, then maybe we shouldn't too quickly just throw it away either. Um, you know this in, in the Old Testament, the, the Ten Commandments are given twice, Exodus 20 and Deut Deuteronomy 5. Exodus 20, the reason for the Sabbath is because of creation. God made the world six days and rested. Deuteronomy 5, the reason is because of the, the redemption. God took you out of Egypt, so rest. That's interesting to me. The Sabbath is given because of creation and because of redemption. So this, this tension that we feel between my human life and my Christian life, between God and the world, how do I reconcile this? I think a key might be Sabbath rest. By taking a rest every seven days to worship God and to just do whatever brings you joy. Again, this is not a command, it's not a new law, but there's real spiritual benefit in doing so. If you're not in the habit of taking a Sabbath rest, honestly ask yourself, why? If it truly is because I'm a Christian, Jesus has come, I don't have to, then I will not quibble with you. But if the answer is really because I can't afford a break, I got assignments, I got a job to do, the competition, they're not stopping, I got to keep up with everyone, then you're in trouble. Because what are you really saying? Who I am depends on what I do. I have to earn my significance, my value. Who I am is not who I am in Christ. My new, my new life verse, I change them out every couple of years, but my new life verse is Colossians 2, 9 and 10. Jesus Christ is the fullness of God and you have been given fullness in Christ. That is so liberating. That means who I am is who I am in Christ, full stop, period. So if, if my life is successful and people talk about me and they read my books, great. But you know what? Nothing's changed. If my life is a failure and no one cares about me and everything I do, if I go bankrupt, and that's a tragedy. But you know what? Still, nothing has changed. Because who I am is who I am in Christ. And I remind myself of this every seventh day when I slow down and stop. Every seventh day, I try to do nothing of economic or pragmatic value on purpose. That's a gift. Every seventh day is a holiday. And that rhythm of work, six days, rest, the seventh day, it burls the gospel deep into my bones. And it brings together the enjoyment of creation and a celebration of redemption as I gather with God's people to worship him. So as we talk about the Christian life, Jesus is the center. But there is a circumference. And so as we navigate in discipleship, as we make people who are following Christ in every area of life, I think we do that by teaching them to prioritize the gospel. We must never lose this. I, uh, we can lose everything else, but we must never lose what Jesus has done. But as we prioritize the gospel, we must encourage people by example, by teaching how to properly, again, not idolatrously, not sinfully, but how to properly enjoy creation, how to do their callings for the Lord Jesus Christ 
knowing that it counts more than ever. And also, not in a legalistic, slavish way, but to take a Sabbath rest every seventh day. If we do that, we will build a life that we enjoy and a life that also pleases God. Father, thank you for Jesus, for the gospel that has saved us and changed us. Thank you that you have rescued us from hell. And also thank you that you haven't just rescued us from something. You've saved us for something, for abundant life, an abundant life that has already begun. I pray that that would change the way we live, the way we think about you, about our mission in life, and even influence the way we talk to other people who are lost and going to hell, to let them know, praise God, Jesus died to deliver them from hell. And praise God, he died to deliver them for here, to live with him forever when he returns to restore this earth. And so we pray, as the Lord himself taught us, come, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. If you are thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level, including doctoral studies, we hope that you consider us. If you also find these chapel messages encouraging and a blessing to your walk with Christ, we hope that you will consider financially supporting Southeastern. Our graduates are literally serving the kingdom across this globe, working to carry the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. Your gifts will help to train more, and they will serve as a worthwhile investment in God's kingdom. You can find more information about attending Southeastern or supporting us financially at www.sebts.edu. We covet your prayers and trust that God will bless every good work you do for His glory. Thank you for joining us in our chapel services.